Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. My name is Kelly Bounds, um, and this is my life story. I was raised in a dysfunctional Christian home. I saw very conflicting examples of the Christian walk through my mom and dad. My dad was a new believer when I was born, and although he was delivered from alcoholism, he still struggled with other temptations. He divorced my mom when I was seven years old and married a woman he was having an affair with, all while attending church regularly and teaching a Sunday school class. My mom was devastated and unable to give me the attention I desperately needed at this young age and in this difficult time. Therefore, my life as a young girl and teenager was confusing and lonely. What led to me following Jesus? I attended church from birth and knew all about Jesus and Christianity growing up. But as a result of my family life and the actions of my father, I didn't get a good picture of what a loving and selfless Heavenly Father looked like. I never made a solid commitment of my own. I struggled with insecurity, loneliness, and rejection. I watched my dad marry and divorce two women after my mom. They were never good enough for him, and therefore I felt that I could never be good enough as well. At 18, I became pregnant and got married and thought I had found my purpose. Being a wife and mother filled my heart with a purpose that I had never felt before. But without a relationship with Jesus, the emptiness soon returned. After being married a year, I decided I was done playing house and walked out on my husband and young daughter. I then proceeded to live a life that was full of reckless, self-centered choices. I was truly blind as my heart became hardened by my selfish ways. Though I was hurting everyone around me, I had no sense of remorse. I felt emotionally dead. One night, even though I wasn't crying out to him, God met me right where I was and took the veil off my eyes. He showed me all the pain I was causing those I loved. My heart was broken, but in that same moment, I felt an overwhelming love and peace, and I knew I could never, ever walk away from it. God healed my broken heart, and it changed my life forever, what my life has been like since. My husband and I came back together after a year of separation, and God slowly but faithfully mended our relationship. We fully depended and still depend on his amazing grace in our marriage and lives. Now I live every day learning and growing in the love that first grabbed my heart and shook me out of the sin-filled, self-filled fog I was living in. The more I think about how God rescued me, the more I want to know him and devote myself to a life that brings him glory. It is an ongoing love affair that will never, ever end, and it has brought me purpose and identity. Thank you. You know, that's why we do this every weekend here at Compass since the beginning of the year. Every single weekend, we've had someone stand up and share the powerful transformation that Jesus Christ has had on their lives. Because our job, more than anything else here at Compass Church, is to help people find their way to God. And to see Kelly's change would hopefully inspire you, maybe in your own life right now, or maybe someone that you know. And so every single weekend, we're going to keep doing this because it really is an act of worship to have someone basically say that they went from a place of confusion and despair and rebellion to a place where God restored them. 
Kelly is on our staff, by the way. She's, one of, uh, she's on our administrative team. And so if you call our church office um, during the week, thankfully I won't answer the phone. Uh, you won't be able to get much from me because I don't know what's going on half the time. But Kelly will. And uh, Kelly will be the one to answer the phone and help you out with a lot of stuff. She has a ton of things behind the scenes. And it's been a joy to have her with us on our team. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, kind of like a third of the way through. So if you have a paper Bible, just kind of go towards the back. If you have a, on, on your phone, on an app, just go ahead and find 1 Corinthians. And we are starting a new series today that's just called Simple Truth. And we're going to look at just the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians over the next bunch of weeks. And the reason why we're taking such a deep dive into it is because there's so much there and it would take us forever to get through um, the whole book, but we're just going to start with the first few chapters, and then we'll see where we go from there. So in your own personal devotion time during the day, if you're looking for something to read, start reading through 1 Corinthians, and you'll get hopefully an idea of, of um, what we're talking about, what God wants to say to us over the next bunch of weeks here. But before we go into it, let me just tell you a little bit about this book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. More than anything else, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. So it's a letter encouraging them. It's a letter, what you might, you might say, admonishing them on a bunch of things. But before we go even get into this, I want to tell you a few things about these people in the Corinthian church. So you get an idea of who we're talking about here who this letter is being written to. So let me give you some characteristics of the Corinthian church. First of all, they were first-generation Christians, which means that their parents did not drag them to church when they were kids. They did not grow up in Catholic school. They don't have a grandfather who was a pastor or a great-grandmother who was a Christian. They don't have any Christian history at all. They are brand new, probably been Christians for just a very short time. And all of this is brand new to them. So they don't have any history. It's important when you think about that because we, even if you're not a believer, you probably have some kind of Christian heritage or something way back or you know someone that's had it or even our culture kind of has it, at least if it's in the past. They didn't have any of that. So all this is brand new to them. The second thing is these guys had serious moral and behavioral problems, all right? Among the, the least of which was they were known for getting drunk at communion. Now, that's kind of crazy, right? We make sure that that doesn't happen here um, because we just give you juice. So unless you come in with a little flask, you know, and while Art's talking, you're like, hang on, you know, look out for me, honey. You know, and you're dumping something into the... But that's why we give you really small communion cups, too, so you can't really do that. So... It'd be very hard to get wasted at communion. But back then, what would happen is they oftentimes would meet in the evening um, for church on the first day of the week. And the, the people that were, um, of, uh, that were poorer would have to work during the day. And the people that were rich didn't have to work as much. And so they would show up for church early. And back then they had a whole meal, right? So they would go and they would be the first ones there and they'd eat all of the, the food that was for communion and they would drink all of the wine. And so when the poor people showed up, there was no food left and there's a bunch of drunk people, you know? So they're showing up going like, gosh, I could have gone to church or just, you know, I could have gone to Roman's Oasis over here. And no difference, right? So it was kind of a problem. 
Not only that, but they would get mad at each other and drag each other into court for all kinds of reasons. There's nothing wrong with using our legal system. But these guys were suing each other, and they would go in front of the Roman court, and the Roman officials and people around would be seeing Christians fighting over trivial things that they should be able to solve themselves. You know, one guy's goat got into a, you know, went and ate another guy's lentils or whatever. And, and there's just, they were mad at each other for stuff, and so they were dragging each other into court, and they were ruining the testimony of Jesus and the church by their actions. Um, not only that, um, but they were also had serious sexual immorality problems. In fact, one guy in the church was openly uh, sleeping with his stepmother, and nobody was doing anything about it. Nobody was like, they're like, ah, whatever, no big deal. And, and it was clearly um, um, an adulterous, immoral, very wrong situation, and they didn't really care. And this kind of thing was happening all throughout in, in, in this church, and so this was going on. So the next thing about them, next characteristic is, and this is kind of obvious one, is they were deeply divided. In fact, if you notice, if you read um, a little bit into 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul says, you guys are saying, some of you guys say, oh, I follow Paul, and I follow this other guy named Apollos, and they were choosing sides. And they're saying, you know, well, I'm a Christian, but I really, I'm a, I'm a student of this guy, or I'm a follower of this guy, and they were using it to pit each other against themselves, Right? And in the same way, oftentimes Christians, we still do this today in several ways. Classically, it's kind of like, well, I'm a Calvinist. You know, I follow John Calvin. So I'm a Christian, but if you really want to know my stripe, I'm a Calvinist. And then other people, well, I'm an Arminian. I follow this Arminius guy. And so that's been the subject of a lot of debate and division even in churches today. Although I would say that what's even more of a division, even now, recently, is our division over political lines. In fact, earlier this week, I was um, with a small group of people with sitting and listening to a pastor, one of the largest of one of the largest churches in America in the Chicago area, about 24,000 people. He's been doing this for 40 years. And he told us, he said, you know, in all my 40 years of ministry and all the influence that he's had uh, in, uh, in America and around the world, he has never seen the church this divided as it's been this divided over the last 12 months. And why? Because of politics. Because people say, I follow Trump. And these people say, well, I follow, you know, the Democrats. And, and people, there are churches that have divided. People have left churches. They've broken fellowship. Christians have broken fellowship with each other. I've seen this. I've seen it on social media. I've heard about it. People say, I no longer can be friends. Even though we're supposed to worship the same God, and love the same Jesus and be about that, I can't be friends with you anymore because you voted for this person or you believe this. It's exactly the same kind of thing that the Corinthian church was dealing with. And in some ways, it's even more incendiary and more toxic because it's not even based on central Christian issues. It's on peripheral political issues that we're dealing with right now. So the point is, is that this book has a lot to say to us about a lot of things because we're in the same boat. But the fourth thing about the Corinthians is, and this is very different than the other three, is this. They were God's plan A, and there is no plan B. They were God's plan A. They were the only and best thing that God had to reach the city of Corinth with his grace and his love and his redemption. 
And that should kind of blow us away a little bit when we think about the state of that church. And yet after all of those things, the Corinthian church was God's best plan and the city of Corinth, their only hope of hearing of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but God has a mission in the world. God's just not, you know, going, um, he's up there like, hey, I got nothing to do, and I'm, Jesus is waiting to come back, and I'm, whenever I'm ready, I'm just going to say, all right, time to end the world, you know, whenever I feel like the clock has run out. No, God is actively involved all over the world, reaching lost people, reaching people that don't know him, people like you and me, because someone had to reach us. And God is actively doing that right now all over the world. And that is his main obsession. That's what preoccupies his time. In fact, our, our church, if you look at it, if you, if you know Compass Church, does anybody know what our byline is? Does anybody know what our mission is? Our, our one sentence thing, you ready? Anybody know this? Helping people find their way to God. Okay, I'll give you a little clue. It's printed right on the front of our program. Every single weekend, without fail, why we are here as a church is printed on the front of the program, right underneath our name. Compass Church, kind of like you have a compass, compass helps you find your way, right? That's why we're here. We help people find their way to God. That's, we're not here to argue about the color of the carpeting or to you know, preserve some kind of old tradition or to keep ourselves happy. We are here because we're about God's mission. The only reason we exist is because of God's mission. And God's mission is, is to help people find him, to, to show people that he's real and that he loves us. And then he sent his son Jesus to pay for our sins as art so beautifully described during our communion service today. In fact, there's a guy named Christopher Wright who wrote a book called The Mission of God. And it's this big, thick, very technical book. But in it, he has this amazing line. And if you've been to Life 360, if you've been to the, the first class, we actually put this quote up in the, in the class. So this would be familiar to you. But I love this quote because he says this. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church, but church was made for mission God's mission. In other words, it wasn't like God was going, okay, well, we have to have churches because, you know, there's the Elks Club and there's the Lions Club and there's the Rotary Club and I got to have a club too, you know, so I'm going to make a club and we'll just call it church. Okay, so what are these guys going to do? Hmm, I got to give them a job. All right. No, 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 no. It's the exact opposite. God said, I have a plan of reaching all of the world with my hope and my love and my forgiveness and my redemption. What is the best way to do that? Do I, begin, do I hire a bunch of pilots with those big giant you know, banners and skyride stuff? Do I have angels go, hey, believe in me? No, no, no. The best tool, the best method is to gather people together who will represent me and show people that I exist and that I have hope for them. And it's going to be called the church. Other than that, there's no reason for us to be here. I don't know what we're doing here. I mean, it's nice to have a job and be employed doing this because it's fun to stand up here and talk to you guys. But other than that, I don't know why I'm here. We are here to help people find their way to God. So God's number one strategy for reaching our community with his hope and his love is us. As failed, as flawed, as dysfunctional as we might be, we're it. And you might go, God, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> like, that's uh, like your best idea for keeping people out of hell 
is us? What are you thinking, God? Well, it's not just us. It's the other churches around here, too, that we have wonderful relationships with that are doing a fantastic job in our own neighborhood, reaching people as well. We're all partners in this. But that is it. So what makes this passage so amazing is as we read this, what Paul is going to say about these people that we've just described. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting from the very beginning, it's a letter. Remember, it's a letter, so it reads like a letter, and this is how it starts. Verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now Sosthenes is listed there because he was Paul's scribe. He was the guy that wrote down what he said. So Paul likely dictated this, and he wrote it down. So he's like an early version of Siri, you know? So he's like, Sosthenes, where's a good falafel place, you know? And Sosthenes would go find it. That's just, you know, that's who he was. He's like his right-hand guy. So he introduces him there. And then he says this, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we should be actually very blown away by what he's just said, given the context of the people he is writing to. Look at this verse again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now the word sanctified... Um, is very important, and the word saints is very important. So if you have a way to like highlight or bold it or underline it or circle it, whatever you want to do, those two words are really key to what I want to drill down on this morning with you. What do those words mean? Well, the word sanctified simply means to be made holy or to be set aside. And the word saints means holy ones. So sanctified means to be made holy and to be set aside for a specific purpose. Now, my wife, she makes this, this um, dinner for me, or lunch, or breakfast, or whatever, because I eat it all three meals. And it's called, she, we call it sweet potato hash. And it's wonderful. It's one of the great contributions that she has made to our marriage, and to my life. There's many others, trust me, but this one is really good. And what she does is she, she gets a pan and she slices up all this bacon. It's good, it's everything good has to start with bacon. And she throws it in a pan and lets it sizzle, you know, and, and, it, and it starts to kind of, all the little fat starts coming out of it. And then she dices up all these sweet potatoes and throws the sweet potatoes in there. And then like bacon and the sweet potatoes kind of coagulate together, you know. And, and then she throws some other little secret ingredients in there that I don't really know what it is. And then she takes, she'll put three fried eggs on top of it and put it in a bowl because I love bowls. Like, I eat everything I can out of a bowl, because I just think, I just love eating out of bowl. I don't know what it is. She thinks I'm crazy, but I love, so I just, so she puts in this big, giant vat of sweet potato hash with this fried eggs on top in a bowl, and it's wonderful. It's like, it's holy. <laughs> it's holy hash. Not that kind of hash. But it's holy. You know why? Because it's set apart for me. And I know that the reason that she made it is for me, and it has a specific purpose. To make me happy. And to fill me up so I'm not hungry anymore. It's so beautiful. And, and so here's what happened. A couple weeks ago, 
she made a ton of it, right? And so um, there was some leftovers. And I was excited about the fact that I was going to get leftover sweet potato hash. Because it's just as good if it's leftover, you know, as it is if it's fresh. And so I, here I am excited about it, and I'm planning on this. Like my whole day, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good. And then I come home only to find out I was informed that the sweet potato hash is gone because it had been eaten by my children. <laughs> and I can't tell you what a violation that was <laughs> to my soul. I went, are you kidding? Some, these kids, they took, they took my sweet potato hash that's for me, and they, they, they raided it. They stole it, and they, they used it for inferior purposes. People who don't value it like I do. I mean, they could have just had pizza. They don't care, you know, whatever, you know. And, and, but they don't know its value. And they ate it, and it was gone. And I was like, why did they get to eat that? That's not fair. That's mine, right? So this is the kind of stuff that happens in, in my life. But, but, but here's the thing, right? The sweet potato hash is holy because it's set aside for a specific purpose. And it's... And it's it's got a sense of calling and it's perfect and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's been made, set apart, made different. Now if you can understand that, you understand that right out of the gate, Paul is calling these people who are getting drunk at communion, who are dragging each other into court, who are sexually immoral, who are, who are completely, um, what does my daughter say, uh, throwing shade at each other. Um, they're, they're, they're fighting. They're divided. Um, they're, it's a terrible thing. And he's saying, I, Paul, am writing to you who have been made holy, set apart, set aside, dearly loved and chosen by God. You are holy people. They say, how in the world is that possible? It is only possible because they are not the ones who have done that to themselves. It has been done to them by the grace of Jesus Christ acting upon them and taking them from death to life and calling them to be his children and his followers. They are washed clean because of his blood and not their own because there's nothing clean about their blood. There's nothing clean about their actions. There's nothing clean about their motives. But they have been given the actions and the motives and the heart and the innocence and the purity of Jesus simply by their faith. And so they're called sanctified. And they're called saints. They're called saints. Now, this is what Jesus does with us. Because these people are not the kind of people that you think of as saints. But what Jesus does with us is he makes us holy. And if you miss that, you miss everything. So we're calling this series Simple Truth. Because we have all these voices clamoring for your attention right now. And we have all this outrage and anger and division and blah, 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 blah. And all these things are really 
um, important now in 2017, but in 2018, there'll be something else to be, to be outraged about. And in 2019, there'll be something else to be outraged about. And there'll always be people trying to distract you and get you to their cause and their side. And I want to give you something constant that you can always bank your life on. That's why we're doing this series. And so what I would say to you is that when the dust settles, and I call the message when the dust settles, because when the dust settles and all is said and done and the voices finally quiet down and the fog clears, no matter what anyone says or how loud they say it, everything rises and falls on Jesus. And why is that? Everything, everything rises and falls on Jesus. And why? First of all, there's two reasons. Number one, because he is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who makes us holy, not us. And so you can spend your life working and trying and climbing and clamoring and scratching and clawing at holiness and goodness and hoping that maybe when you get to heaven, God will look at you and go, oh, I'm so grateful that you did all these wonderful things. I can let you into heaven. You know, I was only taking the top 75% and you made 75.6, so that's great. You're in. And that's how a lot of people see religion. Well, if I can just be better than the rest of these people, then I gotta get in, right? I mean, God will just have a cut off and I'll make it. Nothing to do with what the Bible says. The Bible never says that anywhere, anywhere. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because it, if, if, it's, if it's about my works and your works, then I am going to try to beat you. I am going to try to do better than you. I am going to try to out-holy out you in everything that I do so that I can show God that I'm so much more worthy of heaven than you are. But I'm not. Because it is Jesus is the one who makes me holy. So when Paul looks at the Corinthian church, he sees them as dearly loved by God. So much so that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He sets them apart as God's plan A and there is no plan B. The world's only hope. And he calls them saints. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought of yourself as a saint? Do you ever go, I'm a saint? No. Nobody says that. In fact, what people typically do is they go, hey, I'm no saint. <laughs> Believe me, I'm no saint. It's like, don't count me among those people. And when we think of saints, who do we think of? We think of like old dead people, right? You know, like, in fact, they just made uh, Mother Teresa a saint. So she's like St. Teresa or St. Mother or whatever she is. St. Mother Teresa. I guess St. Teresa. I don't know. I don't know how that goes. <laughs> so they have, um, they have like St. Martin in the fields. They have St. this guy. I'm St. Timothy, right? You know, I would be St. Timothy if I was a saint. And here's the deal. The Bible says that every Christian is a saint. Did you know that? Now, how do you know? Well, what are you talking about, Tim? Well, look what he says. Look, would you look at the verse? Look at the verse. Look at the verse. Go back. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. You are a saint. You don't understand, man. My life is terrible. I can't be called a saint. See, in the church of Corinth, they had saints. See, people will say, well, I'm, I, you know, either they're sinner or saint. You know, some people are saints, some people are sinners. In the church of Corinth, they had saints who sinned. And a compass church, guess what we have? A compass church, we're a church full of saints who sin. Now, hopefully you won't, you're trying to fight that and you're trying to, you know, get better at conforming to the image of God in your life, but you're still going to sin. But you're still a saint. You're a saint who still struggles with sin throughout your life. Please never forget that. Because just because you sin does not mean you are not a saint. In fact, you can take the word saint and put it in front of your name. Like I said, I'm Saint Timothy. Saint Timothy. You're Saint Bill, Saint Fred, Saint, you know, Jenny, Saint Sarah, whatever you are. That's who you are. I don't feel like a saint. I know. I know you don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like a saint either. But according to Scripture, you 
are. Because what is a saint? It's a holy one. You've been made holy. That should blow you away. Now this is very important. Because if we look down further at the letter, if we keep reading the letter, and we scroll down a little bit, past chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, and you get to 6, he expounds on this a little bit more. This is what he says in chapter 6. He says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ready for verse 11? Here it goes. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. There's that word again. You were sanctified. He says it again. You were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you see that? Such were some of you sanctified. But it also says justified. You're going, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you. See, I'm kind of a word nerd, and I love, when, I, when there's a word, I go, what, what does this word really mean? What does this word mean? I don't like to just give big words to you without defining them, right? So the word justified, this is the definition that comes out of a Greek lexicon, meaning the original language that the New Testament was written in was in Greek. And when they translate it, they use this word. But that original Greek word, this is what that word means according to uh, at least one Greek dictionary. The word justified. This is cool. I, I totally just geek out on this stuff, so you'll have to just forgive me. But listen to this. To cause someone to be released from personal or institutional claims that are no longer to be considered pertinent or valid. To be released from personal or institutional claims that are no longer considered to be pertinent or valid. You see that whole list that Paul said, you know, you, you have like people who struggle with alcohol. He says, you, you might, if you struggle with alcohol, you might say, you know, I'm a drunk. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're not a drunk. You might still have a problem with alcohol. You might still have that addiction that you're trying to fight, but you don't have that moniker anymore. That's not who you are. You're not a drunk. You're a saint. You're a saint until the day you die may battle the bottle. But that does not mean that you are any less holy and set apart and washed clean and loved by God whose sins have fully been and completely been paid for by the dripping blood of Jesus all over that. You may have been an adulterer. Oh, I'm just a sexually perverted person. I'm a, I'm a porn addict. No, 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 no. That's not who you are. That's not who you are. You've been released from that institutional claim because it is no longer valid. That's not who you are. You might battle images and pictures your whole life. You fight those things. You fight those things to the death. You fight those to the death. You fight those until your death. But that's not who you are. You've been made holy. The elephant in the room, obviously, in the verse we just read, and some of you couldn't read past that as soon as it came out because of our 10 years ago it wouldn't be the case, 20 years ago it wouldn't be the case, but today it is the case. And so some of you, because some of you read this and you're like, I can't get past that phrase and you haven't heard a thing I've said since I read it, let me attack that elephant in the room. We, uh, 
it, it said in the verse, men who practice homosexuality. Now, we believe, because of what the scripture says, that the practice of homosexuality is not what God wants out of a person's life. It's not part of God's plan. It's not part of an obedience to him. In the same sense that other types of sexual activity that is against his plan as well. We don't believe that that's what brings happiness and wholeness. We don't believe that that reflects God's plan or who God is or what he's trying to do in the world, that kind of behavior. But I love the way that Paul said it because that makes all the difference in the world. And everybody, everybody misses this. It says men who practice homosexuality. It doesn't say men who think about homosexuality because you can't really help what you think about. And right there is a huge gateway for those of you who may be struggling with this in your own life. And you're saying, I'm trying to be a Christian, but I, I have this orientation, I have these thoughts and these feelings. And Paul's, Paul's saying, listen, um, such were some of you. And men who practice homosexuality and, and have no problem with it, and that's where they're going, and they don't care what, anything about what God says about the issue. Just like anything else, people that don't care what God says about anything about alcohol or other kinds of sexual immorality, it's all the same thing. So we at Compass Church fully extend our arms to those struggling with homosexuality, just like we fully extend our arms to those who are struggling with alcohol or struggling with other types of sexual behavior that we know God doesn't want. We all struggle. So the guy that has, the, the, the person who has homosexual temptations has to fight those in the same way that a heterosexual person has temptations that they have to fight. This is the way that it is. But here's the problem. In society right now, everybody wants to be branded with a certain thing. So the, the gay guy says, well, I guess I'm a homosexual. So who are you? Who are you, Jim? Well, I'm Jim, and I'm a homosexual. And that's really interesting. Because I don't walk around going, hi, I'm Tim. I'm a heterosexual. Like, I just don't brand myself that way. So the, the subtle insidiousness of our culture says, well, if that's who you are, then you got to be that. And you wear that moniker. And Paul's come along saying, no, 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 no. That's, you're not Bob the homosexual. You're Bob the saint who struggles in this area and may struggle your whole life. But you're Bob the saint that God loves. And you have no less standing in the kingdom of God than anyone else. The practice of it is sinful? Yes, it is wrong. And we will always camp on that. But we will not treat you differently because this list does not treat it differently. And so it's very important to understand that. Another way of understanding being justified is simply to be made right. It's like when you, write, when you write a paper for school and you know you have the little margins and you have, you have the right justify. What does it do? When you hit the little right justify margin, it, it, it lines up all of the words according to the margin. So it means to be squared up, to be lined up. So when you're justified, you're squared up with God. You guys are, you're even, you're good, you're square. There's, you owe, you owe God nothing. No matter, no matter where you are on this list, guys, no matter where you're on that list of evil deeds, which all of us are in that thing somewhere. Do you realize how amazing that can be for you from a standpoint of healing and wholeness in your life? But you've got to know that you're a saint. And you've got to know that you've been sanctified, set apart. And it's important to hear it because we forget it. And we go, oh, I'm just a dirt bag. You know, I'm just a, no, 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 you're not that anymore. You're not, you were a dirt bag. Oh yeah, we all agree on that. <laughs> but you're not anymore. So to call yourself that would be a misnomer. You know what a misnomer is? Wrongly named. That's the wrong word for you. 
If you have faith in Jesus Christ and you come to him in a broken place and you pour out your heart to him and you come to a place of repentance and saying, God, I don't want to be who and what I am anymore. I need your grace. You are no longer what you were. But it helps to remember. So this, earlier this week, um, Jude and I went, went out to Huntington Beach because there was a little uh, conference, pre-conference for the Willow Creek Leadership Summit that we're going to be doing here in August. So I'm telling you about it now. You better start signing up for it. It's going to be in August. Yes, you're going to have to take two days off of work, but they're going to be two of maybe the most impactful days of your life, Thursday and Friday. So start thinking about it now. Plan your vacation time. Plan, you know, your if you get a little, like, uh, work uh, study or whatever, you know, you can get some time off for get, getting better at what, your job. Start thinking about who you can invite because it's not really for you as well as for you to bring your non-Christian friends as well to see that Christianity has a lot to say about the workplace and everything else. So big bug for that. But we're going to this leadership summit, kind of a pre-conference for host sites, pastors. So that's, that's us. So my wife and I, we went out to, um, to this little pre-conference thing out in Huntington Beach. And I'm on the, we're going, getting on the plane. And when you go through security, I just kind of by nature, um, I always pull out my, my, my military card because where my little ID thing is. And so I just pulled out and give him my, my military card and my ticket. And so the TSA guy, you know, he's like doing his little thing, whatever. He writes down and like looks up at you and looks at your card, looks up at you, looks at your card. And he's like, hands me back my card and my ticket. And he says, thanks, Captain. And I was, it was weird because I was standing there. And I'm like, you know, I'm in my regular clothes like this. And I have my little, my sorry attempt at growing a little beard. And all right, I just got a haircut the other day. So my hair was kind of getting kind of out of control and long. So it's a little, a little shaggy looking. And I'm just, I'm in, I'm in like pastor civilian kind of mode. And he hands me my card. He says, thanks, Captain. And I was like, what? oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm a captain. I forgot about that. And Because I'm a reservist, so I go once a month. So once a month, I pull that box off the shelf. I open it up, and I put my little uniform on, and I you know, and I'd go do my thing and have this great ministry that's amazing out there at March Air Reserve Base in California. But, but you know, when you're in your life, when I, when I come back, I put the box back on the shelf, and, and I go on. And when I'm in this life, when I'm in this world, I just, I'm not, I don't really think about it very much, you know? And all of a sudden, I was like, when he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about it. That's right. And it just kind of jolted me for a second. And I started thinking, you know what? i got to remember that wherever I am and whatever I do, even if I'm, you know, in civilian clothes or whatever else, then people see my little ID that I have to represent the Air Force well and all my behavior and my interactions with people. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It just was a good reminder, like right there for me. And the saints, the same thing as well. Because you're walking around like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not really what God hopes I would be, or man, I could always be better, and blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. You're a saint. So the process of sanctification, because there is a process of sanctification. There is a process of, in a sense, making yourself holy, but all it really is is because you can't really make yourself holy. It's really just living up to what you've already been given. So you're just kind of acting the part. You're acting what you already are. So if I've already been made holy, well then, then doing unholy things is kind of inconsistent with who I am. So there's no reason to, 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 to live in a life of sin when I've already been declared holy, well, now I get the opportunity to live as, as I've been decreed by God. This is who I am. And it's important that you remember your spiritual status. You are called a child of the living, eternal God. And you feel separated from Him? What book are you reading? What are you listening to? So, 
Verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read a bunch and I'm only going to be able to get a little piece out of this because we don't have time. Um, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are, now catch this, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the main thing I want you to focus on is that, that phrase, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's significant about that? Well, it's the second reason that I, the, the second thing that I have to say about this. When all the dust settles, it's about Jesus. Everything rises and falls in Jesus. Why? Because he is the one where all of history is headed. All of history culminates with the revealing and the rule of Jesus Christ on heaven, in heaven and on earth, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. In other words, the things that you are so concerned about now, what brings you fear, what brings you distraction, what you're enamored by now is someday going to mean absolutely nothing if it has nothing to do today with Jesus. Because in Paul's perspective on this whole thing, it was like, you guys got to clean up your act. You guys have been called holy. You've been made holy. And you're living in the shadow of a coming event, which is the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, all of history is going to be completely um, consumed by him. So the question is, how have you prepared to meet him? And how are you preparing right now to live under his rule forever and ever? You see, the gods of today will be made fun of tomorrow. The clothes you are so proud today, people will laugh at tomorrow. Namely, your children. Of course, my kids laugh at my clothes today, although I think I'm a pretty snappy dresser. But I try to tell them, hey, someday your kids are going to laugh at your clothes, too. Um, The science textbooks of today will be garbage tomorrow. They can't give them away. Just like the ones that were written yesterday are garbage today. The fears about what will cause humanity's demise will be mocked and ridiculed. Those people back in 2017, they were so afraid. So afraid of this or that. There's some people who are even afraid of aliens coming and obliterating the earth. What a bunch of morons. Those guys were like supposed to be the adv- most advanced people on earth and they were worried about aliens. Or they were worried about the earth getting a couple degrees hotter and the whole thing just blowing up when 30 years before that they were worried about the earth freezing. And they were like so consumed that they enslaved themselves to, to, to uh, very difficult standards of things so they could somehow preserve their own longevity. Didn't they know that everything hinged on Jesus and the revealing of him? Why were they so afraid of? The music of today will be forgotten tomorrow. Won't be able to give it away. Or it will be mocked again. Case in point, you ever watch Mystery Science Theater 3000? I, every time I, I, I mean, it hasn't been on for a long time, but I, I love that. You know, I watch it, and um, once in a while with the kids, 
And I go, I think to myself, the movies that they're making fun of, like, when those people were making those movies, they actually thought, man, this is good. Like, and I think, would they, what, what, what would they have known if, like, they were making that movie that someday, 30 years later, people would be watching it, but they'd be making fun of how stupid it was. You know, I just think about these kinds of things in my head. Um, the English journalist Malcolm Muggeridge wrote in 1980. It's a little dated, but it's very, very good, and you have to listen to this. So he wrote this back in 1980. We look back upon history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I've seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed and cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. A murderous Georgian in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier in terms of military weaponry and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than all the rest of the world put together so that Americans, if they had wished, could have outdone Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. England now a part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin a forbidden name when the regime he helped to found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and, one of, and of the great victories of the Don Quixotes of the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. These fantastic illusions of power evaporate. The poet Charles Studd, it's a good name. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. That's it. So let me ask you two questions. Where do you stand with God today? Seriously, where do you stand with God? If you're to meet him today, are you confident in your standing with him? Even if you don't meet him today, are you confident in where you stand with him? Do you need to surrender your life to him today? Like Kelly did. Like so many here at Compass Church have. Is it time for you to be called a saint and stop trying to work your way to becoming one? And number, the second question is this, is Jesus the number one priority in your life? It doesn't mean you have to become some, you know, strange person that becomes a monk somewhere that doesn't engage with culture. No, 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 no. It just means that everything that you do is lived and done with an understanding that when all is said and done, the dust settles on everything, Jesus is the only one who matters and his rule and his reign. See, the reason that we live holy lives, this is important, is not just simply because we want to, to just do good things. That's part of it, but it's also preparation for what the new world will be like that we will live in for all eternity. See, people will often say, you know, I don't understand why God would send anyone to hell. 
Well, I don't understand why God would send anyone to heaven who's lived their entire life as though he doesn't exist and they don't want to follow him. I mean, heaven is a place where you do the will of God fully and completely. Why would a person who's lived their entire life for themselves have any fun or any sense of happiness or any sense of of peace in heaven? Because they'd show up to heaven and they go, oh, this place is terrible. I don't even know what this place is. You, you You mean everything is lived here for the glory of God? I don't even know how to do that. I spent the last 85 years of my life living for myself, trying to get away from God. Now I'm stuck here with him for all of eternity? I don't want that. You think a person is just going to automatically transform and become someone who becomes selfless and, and bows the knee and submits and, and, and fights all of their temptations or whatever else and lives everything under the glory and umbrella of God's love and his power and grace and they haven't done that at all for their entire life and they're all of a sudden just going to snap to it and like be completely changed when they die? What kind of craziness is that? The reason we live the way we live now is because we realize this world is passing away and the gods of this world are false gods and we don't worship them. We live for the true God because that's where we're headed. And that's why we're saints. And someday this, this body will, will fall by the wayside, all the corruption, and we will live forever in a place of peace and hope and purity, finally. Finally conquering the demons. Finally free from sin and pain and shame. And that's the hope. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, today, if you are ready to say, you know what? I need to become a saint. I need the grace of Jesus. I need to turn my life over to him. Right where you are, just say, God, today, with my hands held out, I'm giving my life to you. Just tell him that in your head right now. I'm giving my life to you. I'm asking that you come into my heart that you would make me brand new, wash away all of my sin. I've been a liar. I've been, I've been deceptive. I've been bitter. I've been angry. I've been manipulative. But God, those are monikers I don't want to wear anymore. I want to wear the one that says I'm holy. So today, I give my life to you. For the rest of us who've already received Jesus as our Savior, is he the number one priority? Are you living as though his reign is right around the corner? Because it is. And the things that so consume us and distract us, they'll be gone. We'll laugh at these things someday. They will not be important. Elections and current affairs and philosophies will fall by the wayside is utterly stupid in comparison to the glory of Jesus. God, you've given us so much. You've given us your grace. You've given us your very son. And you've given us purity. May we walk in that in all that we do. And may we live for what is coming and not for just merely what is today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.